The rest of you can turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. If you are just joining us, we've been this fall going through a series entitled We Are His, looking at singleness and marriage and parenting and sex and life together in the family of God. And we brought that series to a conclusion last week, only to start it again, sort of a an encore, maybe. No, that, that sounds arrogant. Um, uh, a reprise. Uh, so for our Advent series, we're going to look at how those gospel principles worked themselves out in uh, the family of our Lord Jesus uh, in ways that are helpful for us as we enter a season that can be fraught with difficulty in families. Um, but also can be sources of great joy. And so we're going to look this morning, this theme of genealogy. I'm going to read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, and I will pronounce the names the best that I can. But this is God's word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abud, and Abud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So are all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. This is God's word. Let's pray that you would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we read these names, and some we recognize and some we don't. But you have seen fit to record them here for us, that we might not lose sight of their importance for us. And so we ask this morning that you would teach us, that we might understand more of who you are and what you've done for us in our Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. So, 
where you come from, it matters. All right? You, you read this list of names, maybe in your head, so you don't have to put yourself out there and try to pronounce all of them. But you read them, and, and maybe they resonate with you, maybe they don't. But if it does nothing, it should cause you to pause and think, where you come from, it matters. My wife, her maiden name is Kaysen. I was thought it was a French background. Her dad did some genealogical research and discovered that uh, his ancestors came over and were a part of the Jamestown settlement. They were Cassins, but in the revolution, they changed it to Kaysen so that they could make their loyalties to the new republic a little bit more obvious and not sound so British. My last name is Ferguson. When I was growing up, I used to pretend I start my own company. I called it Ferguson Enterprises. Imagine my surprise to discover there was somebody else who'd already had the same idea, except they did not make spaceship parts. Uh, but I moved up here uh, from a place where there no, were no Fergusons to a place where there's a ton of Fergusons. Everybody's like, oh, are you with the... No, there is no connection. My grandfather came straight over from Britain, had nothing to do with plumbing accessories and supplies. It's not, it's not just the name. Where you come from, it matters. The connections, the actual people, what they endured, what they went through, what you went through. Our families, our generations, our genealogies, they matter. For good. Because it's from those families and extended families that we receive all kinds of love and support. We feel connected to a bigger picture. We receive gifts and talents and, and, and learn how to navigate our way through the world. But it's also for evil. Because in those same families, we see addictions, and abuse, alienation, abandonment, neglect, and all sorts of horrific things that leave long-lasting scars. What are we going to make of this? Even in the best and and most glorious of families, there are things there that maybe only they know about that are just of of great sources of grief and sorrow and suffering. And even in the, the worst families, torn apart by addictions of every kind, there are still little glimpses of goodness. What are we to make about this frustrating mix of glory and shame that come together in the human family. What the Lord teaches us in this passage is that where you come from matters. But for good or for ill, the brokenness of the family cannot hinder God's gracious work in and through his people that he calls his own. The brokenness of the family cannot hinder God's gracious work in and through it. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to consider uh, the, this source of sorrow. Why is it that the family is broken? That even the best families don't have it all together. We're going to consider uh, the shame that comes from that and, and ask the question, well, what good then can the family really be? 
Then we're going to consider our Savior and ask of him, can our families ever find real healing? So the first thing I want us to consider this morning is this question, why is the family so broken? The family is the building block of, of all society. I mean, when, when God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man and woman, and he told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it. The very first unit, the very first structure was the family. And it's from that, that basic building block that all other structures and institutions are born out. Like, like when you're teaching your, your kids to build with blocks, right? You don't take the little ones you, and put those on the bottom. You put the big heavy ones on the bottom and you build up the structure. Well, the, the family is this weighty institution established by God that everything else is built on. But it's almost like termites have gotten into the kids' blocks. And it doesn't matter which block you choose. It just seems to crumble under the weight. What is eating away at the foundation of society? What is it? You see it in this passage. This passage that gives a long list of names. I've, I've, I've often wondered if, if I could fit into a short sermon, a summary of every single person in here. On my attempt so far, the answer is no, I cannot fit it. They all have these stories. They're liars. They're cheats. They are abusers and rapists and murderers. There are godless rebels. And there are prideful kings. There's jealousy and idolatry, and it infects every name on this list. If you want to know what has infected this basic building block of society, it's what has infected each and every one of us. Sin. Sin destroys. It tears down. And it's no accident that the great tempter, in his effort to destroy God's good creation, targeted the family. What are we to make of that? There are a lot of things that we could say. It explains a lot. That no matter how hard we try, things never seem to just work. Because everywhere we go, every relationship that we have, there is this taint. There is this infection. There is this sin that is eating away at the foundations. But it didn't stop God. It didn't stop the Creator from bringing forth the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. And as broken and as frail and as crooked and as wicked as we can be, He reigns even over that. 
and has the ability not to work in spite of, but to even turn our sinfulness, to turn our sorrow, to turn our grief, even for good. We read of Tamar, who was used and abused and cast aside by the sons of Judah and Judah himself. And when they were ready to stone her because she had become pregnant outside of wedlock, only to find out, oh, it was Judah who did it. God was able to turn that grief, that sorrow, even that horrible, horrible abuse for good. Not to make the abuse good, but to humble Judah and bring repentance. To comfort Tamar and grant her a child. And to ultimately bring forth our Lord Jesus Christ himself. You have Ruth the Moabitess. Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, listed in that way to remind us that David murdered him in order to get her abusing his kingly authority. You have Rahab, the prostitute. You have a long line of people who sinned and were sinned against, but God conquered and still brought good. And that's our hope. That when we confront the brokenness of our own families, that our God is able to bring joy from sorrow. For you married people, think about it this way. This this frees you to actually own the baggage that you have from your family of origin. And you have it. If you grew up, if you have a family, whether you saw them or not, you bring into every relationship that you have all kinds of baggage, both good and bad. All of the ways that you learn to cope with anger or stress. All of the ways that you learn to celebrate and, and rejoice. All of the things. And then you get married and you bring that into a relationship with somebody who learned it completely differently than you. And the old cliche about squeezing the toothpaste tube starts to make sense because it's a cliche, because it's true. We all do things so differently. And then you're confronted with somebody who does it So bizarre, like how can they think that's normal? And they're looking at you the same way. This frees you, this frees you to, to look back, not in shame, not to reject, not to cast aside, but to own and confront and name the baggage that you are bringing into these relationships and to be honest and humble about it. Not to insist on your own way. And maybe even to do the hard work of unpacking some of that baggage. And what does it mean for how we can relate better? If you know that God works in spite of the sorrow to bring good, then it frees you to confront that sorrow and put a name to it together with your spouse. And even your kids. Like when that day comes and your kids come back and say, you know... This is your fault. You don't have to get all defensive. Like you can own what you can own. Like, yeah. And thanks be to God that He is able. He's able to bring good.
even out of this song. This presents a challenge for us as a church. Do we present an accurate witness of what the family really is and what God is really doing in and through it? Like, do we just propagate a message of 1950s cultural Christian nuclear family ethics? Or do we live out what's true? That yes, God made the family. Yes, it, it, it looks like a husband shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that is a building block for something new. But there are all these extended families and all of these connections, and we're all broken and we're all miserable and we are all together looking to God, who thanks be to God is gracious enough to bring us into his family. Do we bear witness to his good work? Or do we present a facade of our good works? Why is the family so broken? Because we are sinners. And if that's the case, you might wonder, oh, God can bring good out of sorrow, but what good is the family then? If it's so broken, if it's so corrupt, if sin has infiltrated everything, what good can the family really be? I think sometimes we, we measure what is good very poorly. We let our emotions be driven by what 17 to 22-year-olds do on a field marked with yard lines. We think that good is about being successful and overcoming and being impressive, having it together. And that if, if good is going to come out of my family, we need to, to be like this super family and have it like fix all of these problems and, and be Amazing. But when you read this genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have a list of people who made it, of people who were amazing. You have a list of people who ultimately got deported to Babylon, to exile. You have a list that includes women in this genealogy, which was not something the Jewish uh, culture did when they were uh, writing down genealogies. That was an exception. You, You listed the fathers. You have a bunch of people. We don't even know who they are. You have Gentiles, the Hittite, Rahab, Ruth, You have a bunch of nobodies that God used to do incredible things. Why why do we even think Abraham is an amazing person? This is the guy who twice gave his wife away to some local king so he wouldn't be killed. Why do we think this is a great guy? Because God called him and he responded in faith. It's because God is great. Why do we think David is the greatest king? Because he was a man after God's own heart. And even in his sin and his rebellion, 
He returned again and again and again to the Lord who is great. In God's economy, he doesn't need you to be great. He is great enough. And there are no little people in this genealogy. Every single one of them was important. Ruth, this Moabite widow who had nothing, who was basically gleaning the leftovers in the field so she and her mother-in-law Naomi could survive the next day, became an ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ. This encourages us. It ought to encourage us. What good can the family be? We don't have to worry about it. God just calls us to be faithful. And he will work the good. Right? So often when we get married and we start to notice all of these defects in our spouse, you know you think this. And we try to fix them. Try to force them, conform them, correct them, pressure them, hassle them, hag, nag, and whatever. And, and we don't think maybe naturally, what does it look like for me to be faithful? I've, we think about how to shape this person. We don't think, how is the Lord shaping me to serve? And none of these people in their most faithful moments We're living for themselves. Abraham left his family. Ruth left her family. Sure, they were sinners. We talked about that. But when they were faithful, God was able to do great things. Right? Parents, what what does that mean? for what you are seeking to to impart to your children? What is the most important legacy that you can leave them with? Success? Prosperity? More things? Our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it looks like to follow him. What does that mean for us as a church, as a community, as the the local family of God? Like, are we just waiting around for everybody else to get busy and serve us? Or do we dive in? Do we look for where the needs are? And do we run to them, seeking not for ourselves, but just to be faithful, that the Lord might use us for good? The point is, when we start thinking about goodness, can't think about it selfishly. What good can the family be for me? This calls us to what this teaches us. What good does God call you to be for them? So does that just mean we are forever serving? Never reaching any point of healing. Well, we can be thankful. Our God doesn't just leave us to ourselves. This whole genealogy, made up of sinners and outcasts and little people, 
This is what God used to bring forth the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. But he did it in his time. You read about these 14 generations. Now, if you're really good at numbers, you'll notice, um, if you go back and compare to some of the Old Testament genealogies, they're leaving out some stuff. And that's common. The Jewish uh, writers of genealogies didn't just want to write the genealogy so that you knew who your ancestors were. That was important, and they did that from time to time. But they also wanted to write genealogies to communicate a point about God's faithfulness. You see this at the end of Ruth, where there's this little genealogy with this perfect number of 10 uh, individuals. And you see this here, where Matthew is, is editing the genealogy as was common in his day, to have 14 generations. And he did this because the, the, if you convert the name David into numbers, it adds up to 14. And what he's doing is saying, Christ is the promised king. He's the one. He's the promised one that was promised of David God has brought him about. He is the fulfillment of all of those promises. And why did it take so long? God did it when the time was right. When I was little, my mom used to make shrimp creole, which if you had asked me then was just a lesson in how to get spaghetti wrong. You replace the noodles with rice. You replace the meatballs with shrimp. And you replace the rich marinara sauce with some spicy concoction of awfulness. And I, every time she made it, I hated it. There was this time in college, right, where you can have all the spaghetti you want. In fact, we got so bored with spaghetti, we started putting nacho cheese on the spaghetti sauce and, and making sandwiches out of spaghetti. It was just, we had all the spaghetti I could possibly want every day in the cafeteria. And I'm coming home for Thanksgiving or Christmas, and mom's like, well, what do you want me to make? And I'm like, would you make shrimp creole? I couldn't wait. It was the most glorious thing, and I've loved it ever since. Like, it took decades. But eventually, uh, my parents were able to perfect my taste buds, they would say. Look, healing takes time. God's work of redemption takes time. His work in you takes time. If he were to snap his fingers and take away everything in you that is sinful and twisted and wicked, what makes you think you'd have anything left? But he's patient and persistent and faithful. And all the hundreds and thousands of years don't keep him away from fulfilling his good purposes for his people. And when the time was right, the Lord Jesus Christ came. Where are you looking for, for healing? How are you looking for that healing? For comfort, for wholeness. Right, what this passage reminds us is that God, who cared for these families through all these generations, who held them together, who even in spite of their sin, through their sin, brought forth good. He's faithful to you too. 
He hasn't lost sight of the good work that he's doing in you and through you for his glory. He brought forth the Lord Jesus Christ who bore your sin, who rose again from the dead that you might have newness of life, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty so that you might know that there is a resurrection from the dead. And in the meantime, that same hand of providence that guided and kept his people guides and keeps you. How does that change the way you treat the people around you? If God is so faithful and so patient that he can bear up under your infirmities and your weaknesses and your shames, what does that mean for how you can bear up under others? What does it look like for us as a church? To walk patiently in the grace of Christ as a family called by his name. Look, where you come from, it matters. And there's this little pun, you can't really see it in the English, but the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, is, the word isn't actually genealogy, it's, it's, a, it's like the genesis and commentators struggle. How do we translate this? And genealogy is a good, fair translation, but there's a little pun going on. Matthew is, is hearkening back to Genesis, the beginning, the creation. And everything went wrong. But it hasn't stopped God from being faithful. He still called Abraham, and he promised to bless all the nations of the earth. He brought forth King David. He brought forth the Lord Jesus Christ. Like he is bringing about a new creation. He's setting it right. He hasn't lost sight. He is faithful and he can heal you, those around you, our church, our communities. Ultimately, in the new heavens and new earth, he will reconcile all things to himself. So when we consider our families, all of the good and all of the bad, what God points us to in this genealogy and in our own is that he is faithful. He is able. He brings the good. And all of our brokenness cannot hinder Christ's work of mercy and blessing through the family, through your family, through our church family, for his glory. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would pour out your blessings upon us. Lord, our families, we need your healing. We need your help. Abound to us with your comfort, with your, a reminder that you are faithful, that you have not forgotten. And Give, give us strength then, Lord, to confront that brokenness in you according to your kindness and your mercy and your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.